pray that this past year sometime, yeah? We trust you, trust you. Um, I don't want to steal my own thunder here, but uh, that's just a little inside scoop. I only got one message that we preach every week, and it's this, is that Jesus is awesome, okay, he's totally awesome, he is the answer for absolutely everything that you need, and then the second part of that is this, you just got to trust him, okay, so you can hear this morning, I'm going to say some other stuff, pay attention, don't fall asleep, okay, it'll be good, but like, everything I'm going to say is, Jesus is awesome, he's the answer, he's the savior, you're not. And here's your response. Every time, there might be practical steps of obedience, but for the Christian, those practical steps of obedience always, 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 always flow out of faith. So you first, before you're going to obey him, and we need to obey him, but you've got to trust him. You've got to trust that his promises are true and that he keeps his word. Amen? Amen? And that's why we come. That's why we gather as his people, because he's never failed us. He's never failed us. So pray with me. Father, thanks for this morning. God, we love you. You are good. We thank you that over and over and over again, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful, and then we can trust you. Thank you for that promise this morning, Lord. Thank you for that promise anytime, but especially, Lord, in 2020, in this crazy year. Father, we declare that we trust you. We trust you. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Good to see you guys. Thanks for being here. Um, when it comes to worship, the more the merrier. Amen. Let's get together and worship Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. Uh, for those of you that don't know, this year we're just reading through the New Testament together as a church. One chapter a day, five days a week is 260 days. There's 260 chapters in the New Testament, and so we're just doing that together. And then I'm kind of preaching from one of those chapters every every week. Uh, this morning, the Bible reading plan, or this past week, the Bible reading plan had us uh, finishing up the book of Acts and then starting the book of First Peter. So First Peter 1 and 2, um, I'm not going to pick just one specific section here. I'm going to kind of jump in and kind of give an overview of the first one and a half chapters of First Peter. And here's kind of the way I want to frame this, is I, I love books, okay? I, I, I read a lot, and I don't read all the books. I tell people um, that I read about three quarters, I've read about three quarters of three quarters of all my books that I have. And we've got so many, we've kind of run out of bookshelf space um, at our house, and so my wife, thankfully, just uses them as decorations so we don't have to throw them away, so she just stacks them in different places and sets them kind of wherever we can find space. But I'll tell you what one of my favorite books is, um, or, or my favorite t- one of my favorite types of books, I should say, is I love big old picture books that people set on their coffee table. Do you guys have one of these? How many of you have a coffee table? Nobody has a coffee table. Does anybody have a big book that you set on your coffee table? Every now and then, there's people that have these books on their coffee table. I, I, we, used to have, we used to have one, and I don't know where it, got, where it got placed or what happened to it, but it was a big picture book kind of telling the story of World War II. So it was a bunch of photos from the Second World War and they were kind of put in there in chronological order, and then it, as you kind of looked at it, you would kind of see some of the progress and the different battles and stuff that was made throughout World War II. And there was usually just like a little, a little caption underneath each one of the, the photos. And so, you know, again, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, and so you'd look at the picture and then, you know, read the little caption of what battle it was and what was going on. I used to love just picking that thing up 
and kind of flipping through it. And I say all that because as we came to First Peter again this past week, um, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you know that last year we spent about seven months just walking verse by verse through the book of First Peter. That's for the most part what we do. Um, but as I came to it again this past week, I was just so struck by the imagery, the pictures that Peter uses to describe our salvation is that in the first couple chapters, there's, there's some commands, okay, so there's some imperatives, things we must do, but for the most part, it's all indicatives. It's things that are true, okay, things that are true, and they're true of us because of what Christ has done, because of what Christ has accomplished, and the way that Peter communicates these things are not with abstract words, okay, they're not, so, so let, let me give you an example of this. Close your eyes for a second. Okay, close your eyes for a second. What comes to mind, what do you see when I say omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent? Okay, you can open them. Anything come to mind? Now it might have, but here's the deal, is those words are abstract words. They are not concrete words. They are true, they are true of God. He is omnipotent, he is omniscient, and he is omnipresent, okay? Those things are true of him. They're, they're important words. In fact, theologians have a category in theology called the in, uh, um, incommunicable, incommunicable attributes of God, where there's the words that we have to use to try to describe who he is, okay? But it is not abstract language that Peter uses to tell these people who are going through a great deal of suffering in the early church about their great salvation. And it's amazing the imagery that he has here. And so what I kind of want to do today is, is I'm just going to kind of fly through or flip through the first chapter and a half um, of First Peter. And I just want to kind of show you the pictures. And then I just want to give like a little caption underneath each one. And just kind of explain what's going on. Because man, it is so good to go back and to be reminded of what Christ accomplished for us, because guys, our salvation is amazing. And if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I almost guarantee that probably most of us this morning came into this space not being nearly as amazed by our salvation as we should be. And if we have abstract theology, then a lot of times it's going to lead to an abstract Christianity. A Christianity that's just kind of mushy and it's there and we know some fancy words but it doesn't have any real practical implications in our life. But when we get down into the concreteness of the imagery of our salvation and what Christ has accomplished, it leads to more of a concreteness in the way that we live for Christ and letting our light shine. Does that make sense? You with me? So here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to flip through. I've kind of condensed this down into, there's probably more than this, but about eight, eight different images uh, or pictures that Peter uh, gives us here to describe our salvation in the first one and a half chapters uh, of his letter. Um, the first one is this, and this one's going to need a little bit of explanation, but it's what we do. So the first one is this, is that we are elect exiles who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. I told you that one's a little bit weird, but let me explain it because it's really cool. We are elect exiles who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. 
verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So two things, we're exiles and we're sprinkled with his blood. Here's the idea is that a lot of the imagery that Peter's going to use in all these chapters, and, he, and the same is true right here with this first image that he, that he gives to us, is that of Old Testament Israel and how God called them out of the land of Egypt. Of course, you guys know the story. They were slaves there, and he pulled them out, and he pulled them out in order to bring them into the promised land that he had prepared for them. But they were strangers. They were exiles in that land. They had to go in, and, and it wasn't just like they were... Um, they were immigrants. Again, I think we get this uh, kind of mixed up sometimes. It's when we hear the word exile and that we're to live as exiles, as Christians, we think that, that that means we're to live as immigrants, okay? So just for an example, you guys know Jonas. Jonas is going to be preaching next week. Jonas is from Mozambique. Jonas is an immigrant to the United States, and he's, you know, working on United States citizenship or whatever. And it's not that Jonas has to give up every, you know, practice in his heritage. Oh, there he comes right now. Thanks, Jonas, for the illustration this morning, buddy. Appreciate you. Anyway, <laughs> but, but Jonas, it, it, you know, it's not that he has to give up all of his old cultural ways, of course, but for the most part, he wants to become assimilated to the United States. You know, he's getting a job here, he's going to work on a citizenship and, and adopt some of our cultures and ways because this is just, you know, how we do things. There's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, as Christians, when the Bible says that we're exiles, what you have to understand is that doesn't mean that we're immigrants, Okay? We are not trying to adopt the ways of the world and to be assimilated into the ways of the culture of the world around us. Does that make sense? We are exiles. To be in exile is to live in a foreign land and to know that your presence there means hostility. Means that there's going to be a battle. Means that there's going to be confrontation. There's going to be hard decisions that have to be made. And so he says here that we are elect exiles. We are chosen to live as exiles. And so the nation of Israel came out and they had to go into this land and only through the Lord's power, not their own, they were going to conquer the land that God had promised them and had given to them. So that's one image. And then, but then the other here, one here, and he kind of puts these together. He says, and for sprinkling with his blood. And this is a very specific reference to a passage in Exodus chapter 24. When Exodus, of course, is the story of God bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and into this promised land. And here's what happened. is They, they come out of Egypt. They go Before they go into the promised land, they meet God at Mount Sinai. God comes down in a cloud and there's thunder and lightning. It's totally scary. Everybody's freaked out. But God wants this relationship with them. God's holy and it's just, but it's crazy, okay? And so God gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses gets the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then God is making this covenant with the nation of Israel. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 24. It says that Moses took the blood from a sacrifice that God had told him to make and he threw it on the people. He sprinkled it on them, as Peter's referencing here. And Moses said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord God has made with you in accordance with all these. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up. It means they went up the mountain. So get this. They come out. They're sprinkled with this blood, okay, to make them wholly acceptable in the presence of, of, of God. And now God calls the leaders up to this mountain to have fellowship with him. And listen to what they're going to do. This is crazy. It says they went up to the mountain and verse 10 of Exodus 24 says, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet 
as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. I don't even really fully know what that means, but it was awesome, okay? Then verse 11 says, and he, being God, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. So, they're sprinkled with his blood because of the blood of the sacrifice. They can now go up and they can have fellowship with God. And it says there very specifically in verse 11 that he did not lay his hand on them. Why does it say that? Because God tells Moses in another place, remember Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God's like, I can't really do that, you'll die. And so there's a special circumstance here with the sprinkling of the blood that they're able to have this fellowship with him. But here's the point is that you combine this with the imagery of them being exiles. To be an exile in a land is, is to be a stranger, a wanderer, a sojourner, as Peter's going to use this language later on in his letter. You don't know anybody. You don't know anybody. But if you know God, if you know God, that's enough, folks. And the imagery here is that God wants us to live as exiles, that there's going to be hostility with the world and adopting the world's ways. Yet he's called us, and because of the blood of Christ, we've been sprinkled with his blood, we've been made right in his sight. He's called us to have fellowship with him, to eat and to drink with him. And guys, if we have that, it's enough. Amen? So many times we think that we need to make friends with the world. And by the world, I don't mean, of course we love the world, the people in the world, but the the ways of the world. The Bible says in 1 John that to love the world is to be an enemy of God. Is that to love the ways of the world and the world system and the cravings of the flesh and the desires for sinful evil that the world constantly holds out there as something that we are to pursue. To pursue those things is to be an enemy with God. And we may feel like exiles. We may feel like wanderers. We may feel like we don't have anybody on our side. But if we've got God on our side, and if he has paid the price through the death of his son to have fellowship with him, then we have enough. Amen? And that's, what, that's the first image that Peter gives here. And it's, this image is going to kind of be the primary one that's kind of uh, teased out throughout the letter. So the first picture is that we are elect exiles sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And even though we might not know anybody else, we know him, and that is enough for all that we need. The second image here, the second picture, is that of gold refined in the fire. And the idea here is that faith is refined by trial as gold is refined by fire. Our faith is refined through trial as gold is refined through the fire. He goes on here, let me read very quickly, um, verses 3 and 4, and then get down into the image here in 5 and 6 and 7. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Again, the second picture that he gives us is of our faith being tested by trial as gold is refined through a fire. You cannot destroy pure gold. You can only refine it. You take gold and you put it in the fire, maybe thinking that it would destroy it. It will not be destroyed. It will only be refined. Gold will melt down. It will turn to liquid. And this is, this is how they purify gold. They heat it up. They melt it down. They liquefy it. And then something that they call dross comes to the top. Any sort of mixed metals or impurities that isn't part of the actual gold. And, and it's part of the gold when it's solid. It's, it's, it's like part of it. You, you can't separate it. You can't just chisel it out. It has to go through the fire. It has to be melted down. But when that happens then, that dross rises to the top. And then they go in and they scoop it off. And in the same way, we are so much like that, that, if you guys remember that story in the Gospels, that we're so much like that father who had the little demon-possessed boy and, and it was tormenting him and the disciples couldn't cast it out and Jesus comes down off the mountain after being transfigured and, and you know, he says, you know, what's going on? Why, you know, and the father says, you know, your disciples couldn't cast, couldn't cast the demon out. Can you please help me? And, and Jesus says, you know, of course I can. All things are possible for those who, who believe. And the dad cries out in this moment of just, kind of raw love and compassion for his little son. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You ever prayed that prayer? I believe, I believe God, but I, I, I still got some unbelief. Like we sang a little bit ago, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, but Monday morning comes, God, I'm not sure I trust you anymore. That's dross. That's impurity in the gold of our faith. And there's one way that it's refined, folks we got to go through the fire, and everything's melted down, but then that impurity, that dross rises to the top, and then our loving Heavenly Father wants to come, and He wants to scoop that away. But the nugget of our faith, the authentic nature of our faith, the real gold that's in there, the part that's not dross, it's not going to be destroyed, it's only going to be purified. And so many times we get confused as to why the difficulty comes into our life. Listen, I don't know the specifics of why the difficulty might have come into some of your lives, whether it's, it's cancer or being slandered or sickness or whatever it is that you might be going through. But I know this, that in every trial, just that's why I like what Peter says here. He says, we've been grieved by various trials. It doesn't matter what the specific of the trial is. Whatever the trial is, one of the purposes that I know for certain that God wants to accomplish in your life and my life when he allows these things to come into our life is that he wants to purify our faith. Amen? First John says that our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. If you'll look here in the context, again, just kind of, I, I can't spend much time on this, but here's why faith is a big deal. It says in verse five, it says that we who are, verse five, being by God's power are being guarded. We're being guarded by God's power, but through faith. You're like, well, man, I hope my faith won't fail. No, if you have real faith, it cannot be destroyed, but it does need to be purified. And so we're going to come out of every trial, even all the ones that 2020 has brought, if we continue to just say, like we sang earlier, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And God, in this moment, I help my unbelief. I don't trust you, but I trust you. He's going to refine us and purify us. We're going to continue to be guarded <coughs> by his power until we receive the fullness of our salvation. In the end, the third picture, again, just flipping on through. Uh, just very quickly, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this is really cool. 
You have peering prophets and gazing angels. Peering prophets and gazing angels. Verse 10, he says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. So the the idea is this, is that there were all these prophets in the Old Testament, godly men, looking forward, seeking God, saying, when is this Messiah going to come? When is this Redeemer going to come? They're looking for him. They're longing for him because the world, just like it was, is now and was back then, it was a mess. <laughs> there was brokenness and sin and war and death and evil all over the place. When is this Messiah going to come? They're looking for it. And Peter's, the, the point being is that, guys, they were looking forward to the days that you now live in when this Messiah would come. And not only does he give this image of the prophets peering forward, searching for this Messiah to come, but then he also says this, and he almost says it in passing, but this is a really cool image. End of verse 12. He says, those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, he says this, things into which angels long to look. That angels are looking at our salvation, trying to understand what it means for us to have fellowship with God. Very, very, very quickly, again, we could spend a lot of time on this, but guys, do you understand the uniqueness of how you've been created? That you've been created with a body, soul, and spirit. The, the, Jesus said in John chapter four that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship him in truth means that we must worship him as he is. We cannot create a God in our own image, okay? He is who he is, and he does not need to change, and so we bet, best not change him, Amen? need to worship him according to the truth, but we also need to worship him in spirit. And God has given you a spirit through, if you've, and if you believed in Jesus Christ, your spirit, which was once dead, is now made alive by his Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. And, and we are these unique beings as human beings. We are the crown jewel of God's creation. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and he's making you know, plants and animals, and he had already, you know, in, in eternity past sometime, made the angels. Angels are total spirit. Animals are total body, humans are both. That we have a body and the spirit and we're, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. Everything that God made in Genesis chapter one, he says it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then he comes to and he creates man on the sixth day and he says it was very good. And, and these, the, the idea here is that these angels long to look into what it means to be us, to have a body and yet fellowship with the God of the universe, that we're so weak, we're so broken even because of our sin, but we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ to experience this grace that we've been given. One more image here, in the Old Testament, if you guys are familiar with the Ark of the Covenant, it was this like box on sticks that the people carried around, and this carried around the presence of God as they would go and, you know, face their enemies or whatever, and they would place it then in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. But in the Ark of the Covenant, you had these stone tablets, you had Aaron's rod, you had a little jar of the manna that God had provided for them in the wilderness. But then on top of the Ark of the Covenant, it had a lid, and there were these two cherubim, these two, like, awesome angels, and they were on either side, and they were kind of like their wings, if you've seen pictures of this, kind of like bowed over, um, either side of this. And in the middle of that, on either side of the, in between the two angels, was what they called the mercy seat. 
in once a year, only on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter in and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And obviously the imagery is of Jesus Christ being our better sacrificial lamb who did for us on the cross what the high priest would have to do over and over again. Christ did once for all, for all who trust him. But Charles Spurgeon, in commenting on this verse here in verse 12, talking about these things in which angels long to look, he also pulls from that imagery of the, the cherubim over top of the Ark of the Covenant. And again, they're kind of like facing down where the high priest would place this blood. And he says, atop that mercy seat were two carved cherubim looking down. I love this. And they were intently gazing into the marvel of the propitiation by blood. The images of these angels gazing down, marveling at how the blood of a lamb could redeem these sinful people. I think it's a, I don't listen to them a lot anymore, kind of like them. The group Selah, they have, a, they, have a, they have a song called Wonderful, Merciful Savior. And they have this little line in there where they just say, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Who would have thought? The angels looking, man, what, what is it like to be Matt Beachy? <laughs> Have fellowship with God. We would long, like again, and the irony is we long to know what's going on in the heavenly realms. Man, what's it like? What angels and demons and there's warfare and what? But no, the angels are looking at us. What is it like to be a redeemed saint? To know God as your father. Our salvation is awesome. We've got to keep going. The fourth picture here, children and fathers, very simple. Verse 14 through 17, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, that we are to be obedient children, and God is our father. And in between here, the, what he's, what the, the command that he's kind of squishing in between this imagery or this picture is that of our pursuit of holiness, is that we are to be holy as he is holy. Why? Because he's our father, okay? If we're out in a place and there's a bunch of kids running around and the kids might all be misbehaving, okay? Maybe your kid's one of them, but my kids are involved. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I, I love your kid, like if they're doing something to like maybe harm themselves or something, like I'm, I'll tell them to stop, but I'm not primarily concerned with your kid, right? Have you done this? There's a group of, and again, I've got all boys, so I know girls never sin or do anything bad, but, all, and, you know, and they're, they're doing something and I'm, you know, and I, what I do, I call out my boys to stop it. Why? Because they belong to me. They're mine. Care for the other ones, but they're, they're not my primary concern. God is our father to each one of us that has trusted him. We are his children. And brothers and sisters, this is what I said earlier, you, you can't like just chop off the parts of him that you don't like. He calls you and I to pursue holiness. Why? Because he is holy. And we are his kids, and he is our father. But here's the deal, is that I, I think this whole idea of, again, especially, you know, especially when you grow up in this area, most of us grew up in church. A lot of us had a, had a flavor, or we tasted a flavor of legalism, 
many times in those churches, which is pursuing outward obedience in some way to try to make ourselves right with God, and then we begin to talk about holiness, we get really uncomfortable and it doesn't feel well. But I would just point out here that, what again, he, he's giving us this command to pursue holiness in the context or the imagery of being God's children. We're not pursuing holiness so that we'll be his children. He's saying, you are his children, now pursue holiness. This is grace-driven obedience, not obedience that earns us grace. Yeah? There's a massive difference. And so many people live on the wrong side of that. That you think you need to pursue something and become something in order to be accepted. But you are accepted in the beloved in Christ. <clears throat> our pursuit of holiness cannot be divorced from our identity as his children. Okay? And so if you're struggling with practical holiness, you probably need to come back again and look at the beauty of this picture that Peter gives us here. That only by grace, only by trust, only by faith are you justified and made a child of God and then your Father's Spirit lives in you to help you pursue obedience that he calls us to. Number five, again, some imagery here of gold and silver and being purchased. He says, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your, the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And you got to love Peter here, because I think, he, I mean, th this is the exact opposite of how we talk. He's saying, you, you, weren't, you weren't ransomed, you weren't bought with worthless stuff, like money. You weren't, you weren't ransomed with worthless stuff, perishable stuff, like silver and gold. Silver and gold is what we hold in the highest esteem. It's what we all want to run after. Okay? But here's the deal. Silver and gold, money, Benjamins, okay, whatever. Sorry. Whatever it is that you're running after, it's okay to have. But here's what you can do with that perishable stuff, is you can buy perishable things. But you can't buy eternal things. And your soul is eternal. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? It's a rhetorical question. There's, just, there's nothing he can give. Because your soul is eternal and so it must be purchased with something eternal. And we were purchased with the eternal, precious blood of Christ. That's it. That's it. There's nothing you can give in exchange for for your soul, folks. And Peter's reminding us of that here. That all those things are perishable. They will come to an end. But the blood of Christ will intercede for us for all of eternity. And it is enough. It's the only thing that could pay the price for your soul. Keep going. Number six here, the next image, is that of a seed in grass. He says, verse 22, having purified your souls by your, your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever, and this is the word, uh, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. As he says here that, we've been born again, the thing that did the miracle in our hearts was the Spirit of God taking the Word of God, the Word of God is the seed, 
and it birthed something in us. Something took root in us. And a seed is small, it doesn't seem like much, but it is imperishable, this seed. And absolutely nothing can stop it. If you throw a bunch of seed down on the concrete, the concrete wins every time. Amen? But if that seed gets down in a crack in the concrete, or if that seed grows just beside the concrete and it begins to take root and grow, we've all seen it, right? The seed wins every time. It's going to push up through the concrete. The concrete doesn't stand a chance. If the seed can get down through that hardness and be planted, there's nothing that can stop it. And that's what God's word does in our lives. And so, and again, I was talking with a group of young people a couple weeks ago, like 19, 20, 21, some college age type kids. Um, and, I, and I was trying to explain to them the importance of understanding your season, okay? Is that this is something I struggled with a lot when I was young. It was like, I knew that God had done something in me, but I didn't see a whole lot of fruit. I didn't see a whole lot of change. You have to understand that the nature of what God does many times is like that of this imagery here, is like that of a seed. It's small and it's taking root and it takes time to grow. But don't give up on it. Don't give up on it. Continue to water it, continue to tend it, and in time, your season, a season of fruitfulness is coming. It's coming. Because that seed, especially this seed of the word of God, it's imperishable. And so you've got to understand that because you're, you're disappointed because it seems like a fruitless season. It seems like nothing's happening. It seems like the concrete is never going to break. You're never going to bust through. That's not true. It's not true. The word of God is true. And the word of God says that this seed is imperishable and it's undefiled and unfading. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have its intended effect in your life and bear fruit to the glory of God. Next picture, beginning of chapter 2. He says it's this image of newborn infants. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up to salvation. We got a lot of babies and we got a lot of baby bellies right now at Mercy Hill. Praise the Lord. Um, which also means we'll have a lot of crying as it continues to go. And man, I'm good with it because it's a biblical image here that Peter gives to us and, and helps us in our sanctification process of, of how we grow in him is that we are to be, again, not, not ignorant or not unwise or unknowing, unversed like an infant, but we are to long for the one thing that will cause us to grow like an infant. And again, it was, you know, when the boys were little, Hannah had what they needed. <laughs> and I didn't all the time. So they began to cry. I was like, I... Here, <laughs> you know, take them. And, and the idea here is, is of that, that cry, that longing. A baby will not be stopped in their pursuit of getting the one thing that can satisfy them. But also, it's not like, like a baby is not concerned with how big the menu is, right? Oh, well, let's see. Would I like uh, some fettuccine Alfredo or would I like the filet or, you know, maybe just a cheese? No, they, they want one thing. One thing. There's only one thing that can satisfy them. There's only one thing that can help them grow. There's only one thing that can give them life. 
And again, for, we, guys, we think there's so, much, so many other things that we need to pursue. So many other things that we need to run after when there's one thing. It's the pure spiritual milk of God's word and God's spirit working together in our lives. It is by these that we have tasted of salvation and it is by these that we grow into salvation. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Next image here, and I'll, and I'll kind of, there's several here and I'm gonna kind of mush them into one but, and we'll be done. But the, the other image that Peter gives here of our salvation is that we are God's new temple and that we are God's new people. We are God's new temple and we are God's new people. Verse four, he says, as you come to him, him being Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Okay, so again, it's a weird image. There's stones. We are those stones, but they're not normal stones. They're living stones. Christ is the living stone. He's gonna go on here, verses six and seven, talk about how Christ is the cornerstone. In other words, he's the most important piece. He's the most foundational piece of this building. And then we are built upon him as living stones knit and held together as God intends and purposes. I believe when I was preaching through this uh, about a year or so ago, we talked about how in the Bible, it's kind of some cool imagery, is that the one place that, that bricks are talked about are in Babylon and Egypt. Those were two bad places for God's people. Babylon, man was trying to make a name for himself. In Egypt, they were making bricks because of slavery. We're, we're, God's house isn't built out of bricks. Everything's the same. Cookie cutter. God's temple, God's church, God's people, we're not cookie cutter. Each one of us is unique. And each one of us is placed into the body of Christ as he so chooses. And the imagery here is of him building this new temple out of his people that he's redeemed. And the temple, again, in the biblical imagery, is that this was the place where people went to meet with God. This is a really big deal for us, church. Because if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're, you're a part of the universal church. If you call Mercy Hill your home, again, I would argue that it's God's will for every single person to be a, a, a vital member, partner in a local church. But for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, brothers and sisters, we are to be the place collectively where people meet God. We're not God but they meet him in us and through us in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, in the way that we share the good news for them, in the way that we don't give in to fear, in the way that we have hope, in the way that we trust in his sovereignty. That We're to be the place where people meet with God. He's building us into this spiritual house. And it's an unbelievable privilege. And our Christianity is not just individualistic. It's not just you by yourself doing your thing with Jesus. You are part of a spiritual house. And this is going back to the pursuit of holiness. This is one of the reasons why so many of us struggle. Is we struggle with practical holiness because we don't understand that we're part of a house that God is building. We just think we're just our own individual stone rolling along. We're a rolling stone. I'll leave that alone. Um, but we're not. We're, we're made as part of this spiritual house for God's glory. It's God's will for you to be vitally connected in the local church. I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor. I'm saying it because God's word says it and it's for your good. 
that you know people and that people know you. Um, not only are we God's temple, but we're also God's people. And he says here, verse 9, and again, this is all Old Testament imagery out of the book of Deuteronomy, specifically referring to the nation of Israel, but Peter takes that and he applies it to the church. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter was writing to people of all nations that were scattered abroad. But he says, in Christ, you're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. And then here's the point of all this, and I think these last two images of the temple and of his people and of this priesthood specifically, but really everything that he said, all these images are given to us for one overarching purpose, and it's glorious. And it's nothing new, it's something that we talk about, it's something that's right in our mission statement, but here's what it is. The point, the purpose of all these images that Peter gives here is so that we would worship him. That's it. You and I were made to worship Jesus Christ. You've heard me say this before, but you can't not worship. You are a worshiper. It's just a matter of what are you worshiping. Can't do it. You are you can't not do it. I mean, you are a worshiper. I don't care how badly my toaster wants to be my refrigerator. It's not going to work. It is designed to be a toaster. That's it. You are designed to be a worshiper. But our sin has broken us. We're still toasters. We're still worshipers. But we worship the wrong thing. We're worshiping anything else that comes our way. Money, fame, pleasure, reputation, what people think about us. Reputation. Oh, reputation. Folks in this area, reputation. Can I get an amen from anybody? Reputation in the name of Jesus. Stop. Just stop. You're not that awesome. Jesus is. It's about him. That we may, and I love this, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Worship to me and come up. We're gonna close. Guys, this is what we were made to do. And again, I would encourage you to go back, read this again on your own, look at the images, look at the context around it. Again, we spent seven months last year walking through this entire book, verse by verse, and I know I just kind of pointed out the big pictures here this morning, but man, how important it is to remember the big picture, amen? <laughs> how important it is to get these images and use them as fuel in our soul to cause us to burn hot for Jesus. Just bow your heads with me. Close your eyes, please, as we, uh, as we close. Um, I don't have any real specific questions to ask you this morning. I just wanted to point out those pictures.
sure many of you have heard those many times before. But I guess it's the one thing I would ask is something that I mentioned this morning as we opened. I just, guys, are you amazed at your salvation? Are you amazed at your salvation? And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're not amazed by it, would you just, in, in your own heart this morning, right where you sit, would you just repent of that? And then here's the other question. It, guys, if you've never been amazed, if you've never been amazed at God, if you've never been amazed at what He's done through His Son, then maybe it's because you don't know Him. Maybe it's because you don't know Him as Savior. Maybe you haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Listen, don't, don't play games. I have to tell people all the time, like, you know, when people talk to the pastor, it's like, oh, I talk to the pastor, I better say, say the right. Like, there is no point in trying to fool me. There's no point in trying to fool anybody. Either you know the Lord or you don't. And maybe the reason you're not amazed by your salvation is because you've never experienced the salvation. I, I would tell you this morning, here, here's the call, here's how you know, and it's very simple. You repent of worshiping other things. You acknowledge, you confess to God that you've spent your life worshiping other things, pursuing pleasure in other things. And then you turn. Repentance literally means to turn. You turn and you trust Him. You say, Jesus, I believe your blood was enough to pay for my sin of worshiping other stuff. And God, I want you to send your spirit into my life and I want you to make me who was your enemy, I want you to make me your child. God always answers that prayer. Always. For those who trust him. Father, I just pray today that, you know, God, this, this week and just in this season, Lord, the world needs to be reminded of what we were all created for, and that is to worship you. And Father, I just pray that we would do our part. I pray that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. I pray, Father, that even now, as we just sing this last song, as we worship you, through singing, as we worship you through song together, corporately. I pray that we would sing like a people who have been brought out of darkness and into light. We would sing like a people who have been brought out of Egypt and into the promised land. That We would sing like a people who have received so great a salvation that the angels are peering in this morning and gazing at it, trying to understand. Help us to sing like your people today, Lord. We love you and we thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me, please.